Good evening once again, everybody. We're gathered together in a very, on a very auspicious day. In case you didn't know, the Dalai Lama turned 80 today. So before we sing happy birthday to him, here's a few quotes from the Dalai Lama. If you think you are too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. <laughs> know the rules well so you can break them effectively. And this one I love. Compassion is the radicalism of our time. Compassion is the radicalism of our time. So, let's sing. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Visualize him giggling. Happy birthday, Dalai Lama. Happy birthday to you. Yay. You know, to have the Dalai Lama and, and Pope Francis on the, on the planet at the same time, it gives you hope, you know. So as Mark announced, uh, I will be doing a performance uh, this Friday with Nina Weiss at the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley. And if you are interested at all, you can come up and get a postcard uh, to remind you and give you the details. But what I want to talk about tonight is is part of uh, the monologue that I do, and it's uh, about identity. And uh, I think that all of the Buddha's teaching can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. <laughs> you laugh. But the disciples come to the Master and they say, and the Master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again until you do get it. That seems to be the number one question in all esoteric traditions. Who am I really? Because how we see ourselves in the scheme of things determines how we feel about our lives, how we behave toward each other and the environment. Many different uh, traditions have framed the question in interesting ways. In Zen they say, who is it that's dragging this corpse around? Or who goes in and out of these six sense doors? <coughs> I think ever since we humans grew these big brains, we've been asking ourselves this question, who, who am I really? And over the centuries, we've come up with some fantastic answers. Stories about heavens and hells and gods and demons. And humans have grown so arrogant, perhaps because of our position in the pecking order of beings, we've grown so arrogant, we've come to believe the entire universe was made just for us. 
We even believe we were made in God's image. That God looks like this. Our major religions have come to regard the earth as a kind of training planet. A place where you come to burn off some karma, you know, in our tradition, or learn some lessons, and then you get to go off to some other place where you truly belong. The whole mythology is taking the individual point of view and sort of letting letting loose of any other identity than the individual drama. As the Buddha said, true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. To see that we are part of everything, that we co-arise with all things. I want to read a couple pieces here. This is by Joseph Campbell. The old gods are dead or dying, and people everywhere are searching, asking, what is the new mythology to be, the mythology of this unified earth as of one harmonious being? He writes, we need a myth that will identify the individual not just with his own self, family, or group, but with the whole planet. And this is Albert Einstein. A human being is part of the whole, the universe. We experience thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. The delusion is a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affections for only a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of love and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. <coughs> to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Those old stories seem dysfunctional. They kind of take our reverence away from this world. And they remove the human from the web of life. And that old mythology may be partly why we are creating such havoc on the planet. It's how we understand ourselves. How we've come to know ourselves. Luckily, we are now starting to tell some new stories about who we are. And the new stories say that we are intertwined with all and everything. As they, in physics, they, they talk about entanglement. We're entangled, whether we like it or not, in the physics sense. They talk about the chaos theory. Every time I move my hand, the entire universe gets involved. The new story also tells us that we are related to every being that has ever lived. Bound together by the elegant spiral of the double helix, the DNA, we're all descendants of the same single-celled beings. So with the grasses and trees and bugs and beasts, we're all cell brothers and cell sisters. Can you dig it? Yeah. <laughs> And the story 
And the story of evolution is everybody's biography. The new story we're starting to tell ourselves is also based in science, so you know it's true. <laughs> but I call it the latest, greatest story ever told. Let me give you a, a few episodes from that story. Just to begin with, uh, at the very beginning, because that's only appropriate, Carl Sagan uh, once said, if you're going to make apple pie from scratch, first you have to make a universe. <laughs> so the story that we're getting now from our scientists about the beginning of the universe is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's as good a story as any Bible. Uh, offers. First of all, the scientists said that there was nothing, and then there was a big bang. But a bunch of people said, wait a minute, if there was nothing, what banged? So they went back, and they, they did. They reconfigured, and, and, and they decided there had been something after all, a dot. It's called a singularity, a point Billions of times smaller than an atom. <coughs> and so it came to pass, saith the scientists. This is a new creation myth. We want to put some pomp into it. And so it came to pass, saith the scientists, that that dot exploded. It happened 13.7 billion years ago. Today. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, too. The whole universe's birthday. Out of that explosion of that dot came the elementary forces, the elementary particles, the elementary elements. They began mixing and morphing, eventually creating billions of galaxies full of billions of suns and planets and the earth and the mountains and the oceans and the people and the zafus and the bells. Everything we can know of and name, it all came out of the explosion of a tiny dot much smaller, much, much smaller than an atom. Now, isn't that more plausible than the idea of a God who created everything in six days? Take your pick. Which is more fantastic? Here's, an, here's a wonderful image for you. A trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was six feet in diameter. That's a universe you can get your mind around, huh? Take it home, put it in the garage, you know. It's <laughs> now, uh, w one scientist estimated the universe to be 10 billion trillion cubic light years large, <laughs> approximately. <laughs> and, you th and you think, what's out there in all that space? There, it's an enormous amount of space. The latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies containing 30 to 50 billion trillion sun. And it was all made just for us. <laughs> Getting harder to believe that, isn't it? A little bit. It may not have been made just for us. The new Kepler space probe is now finding thousands of planets in our galaxy alone that could support life. It's starting to look very likely, very probable there's life 
all over the universe. I think that's really good news because it takes the pressure off of us. <laughs> we no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos, you know? What a relief. It's a whole different understanding of who we might be in the world. The serious side of, of this, what we're discovering. Who are we now in that vastness? You know, it wasn't so very long ago we thought the sun ran, went around the earth. We're telling ourselves a new story. And uh, if you look at uh, what science is discovering about reality or phenomena, or matter, you see how much of a chimera it all is. It looks like there's a lot of stuff here, right, in the universe? But there's hardly any stuff here at all. Because everything we perceive is made of atoms, and atoms are 99.999% empty space. You maybe remember in high school physics, you take a nucleus of an atom and blow it up millions of times till it's the size of a pea. The electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a grain of sand and it'll be a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter to matter. So why don't we just fall right through the floor, right through the earth? We must be part of somebody's magic act because there's no explanation. Of course now they've broken the atom down to three minuscule subatomic particles, quarks, leptons, and gluons. I'm not sure how it works, but I think the gluons hold the quarks and the leptons together. <laughs> Doesn't that seem obvious? Yeah. Who can follow these guys, though? I mean, they talk about things that you just can't e imagine, like antimatter. I thought I was starting to understand matter, and then they started talking about antimatter. They, they say the universe is suffused, filled with antimatter. And every time a particle of matter meets a particle of antimatter, they annihilate each other. I think maybe the discovery of antimatter is proof that whoever or whatever created the universe in the first place was somewhat ambivalent, you know? <laughs> particle of matter. Oh, it'll be so much trouble. Particle of antimatter, particle of... What else is there to do? Particle of matter. But the discovery of antimatter raises important new questions for us humans. Now we not only have to ask, what's the matter? We have to ask, what's the antimatter? <laughs> and, and of course we have to ask, does it antimatter? <laughs> These are the jokes, friends. I just... Uh, but, but, uh, but the universe they are describing now in the world, in, in physics, is, is just amazing. They, they, they seem to have an idea of what's going to happen to this universe that we're in, the space-time universe. They say it is expanding rapidly in all directions. And they expect it to expand forever into nothingness. And they call that a cold death. 
However, if there's enough gravity, or perhaps gravitas, the expansion might slow down, and, and then everything would begin collapsing back again in a process they call the big crunch. And everything would collapse back into a singularity again, which they call a heat death. So heat death or cold death, which do you choose? I mean, <laughs> the universe is going to get you coming or going, you know? I like the idea that we all come back again into a singularity. Maybe there'll be another big bang. We'll all be reborn into another space-time universe, one with less troubles and less friction. The Dalai Lama, by the way, was asked once, uh, other cultures, you know, have talked about other universes and multiple universes for, for many centuries. The Dalai Lama was asked if they had the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. And he said, mm, oh, yes, but bang, 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 many bangs, many universes, you know. So who are we, anyway? I mean, if your body's made of atoms, and atoms are mostly empty space, what is holding your clothes on? Antimatter. Hmm? Antimatter. Antimatter is holding your clothes on. This new story we're telling is really dramatic and really starts to teach Dharma in a major way when we get to the story of biological evolution on this planet. I bet most of you believe that the story of evolution is true. At least those of you with big four brains. Uh, but I don't think we really get it yet. The story is too new. It hasn't had time to really seep into the corridors of our psyche, into the marrow of our beings. We don't live with that kind of understanding. And maybe it's just because the story is too recent, you know, we ha it hasn't had time. And also because we haven't sort of given it uh, a spiritual flavor. I think we need to sing about evolution and dance evolution and create rituals and ceremonies around evolution. I suggest we start by chanting the table of basic elements. <laughs> Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon. It's got mantra quality, doesn't it, with the M's and the ons and the When we meditate on our breath, we can reflect at the same time that with each breath, we are exchanging nutrients with the plant kingdom so that with each breath we become a cell in the great breathing of the planet Earth. And we can feel our identity as earthlings. If you touch your knee or your elbow or rub your upper and lower teeth together or touch your knuckles, feel the hardness of bone. Your bones are made of calcium, phosphates, silicates, carbon, essentially the clay of earth mysteriously molded into this skeletal shape. Where else could this body have come from? Most of your body is liquid and most of that liquid has the chemical consistency of the oceans. We sweat and cry seawater. We're not just on the earth, we're of the earth. 
The earth is inside of us. We're like earth sprouts that gained a lot of mobility. <laughs> Certified organic, every one of us. <laughs> and uh, all the elements that are in our bodies were created. I just read an article in the New York Times. It said they found traces of the early supernova explosions that created the elements that became our planet, became our bodies, were stardust, were golden. How many did it? How many did it? And what's really interesting and what really gives us a sense of being connected and belonging is the fact that we are built out of all the life that came before us. Richard Dawkins says, if you had a picture of your great-grandfather, 150 million great-grandfathers back, and everybody has, has a great-grandfather 150 million great-grandfathers back, you would have a picture of a fish. Some of your relatives were scaly and could breathe underwater. We're built out of the life that came before us. Right now, inside your skull is a fully functioning reptilian brain, the brain stem, a fully functioning mammalian brain, the limbic system, and the new human brain, the neocortex. And there's growing scientific evidence that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that we're not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. And you can start to see that in meditation. You can see how complex this brain is and how impulsive it is and how you know it, it lives so much with it, the instincts controlling it. And you start to realize that, you know, you're, all of uh, what goes on is, a lot of it is inherited. It isn't you. It isn't I, me, mine. I like to think that when we sit together, when we're meditating together also, we're not sitting as individuals for our own personal awakening even though that's part of it. But we're all sitting together as beings who are all sharing a moment in the history of the development of consciousness on this planet. We're all waking up together at a particular moment in time. So this new story we're telling us ourselves is uh, bringing us into the web of life. It's uh, giving us a whole new understanding of who we are. And as you may know, your DNA is almost identical to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. 99.999% 
The instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as those instructions for me, the Dalai Lama, House Speaker John Boehner, you know, <laughs> Oprah. All that DNA is really, all of our individual differences are just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design. We share over 98% of our DNA with great apes, nearly 90% with mice. That's because most of the information in the, in the DNA is, is instructions on how to build a basic mammal. You know, a nervous system and a digestive system and a, and a metabolic system and senses and instincts and make it all work together. It takes a lot of information. We share nearly 50% of our DNA with worms and nearly 30% with yeast. So if we declare ourselves divine, is the slime not also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? Who gets a soul? You see, the, the story of evolution doesn't deny our divinity, but it may deny our exclusive divinity. There's a t-shirt put out by the Santa Cruz Biology Department at UC. It says, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas, get over yourself. <laughs> Because, and, and you know, and a good case could be made that the whole universe was made for bacteria. Little, little things, little, tiny little single-celled beings. There's recently been a lot of uh, news items about how our body weight is like 90% other life forms. The great molecular biologist Lynn Margulis says, our concept of the individual is purely arbitrary. All of us are walking ecosystems. The bacteria were here first, you know. First single-celled beings appeared on Earth 3.8 billion years ago today. <laughs> And they thrived, and they survived, and, and now there are more individual bacterium in your mouth than all the humans that ever lived on planet Earth. They have churches and roads and houses. <laughs> whole civilization between your cheeks. There's some speculation that the bacteria invented human, uh, humans as a moving feedlot. You get room and board and a tour of the neighborhood, you know? <laughs> and and the, the secret of their success may be the fact that they reproduce by just dividing. You don't have to take each other out to dinner first. <laughs> <laughs> but we are a new, a new kind of animal. We are a new kind of animal. There's no denying it. I hope you're not offended by that. That is the way some of our eminent scientists classify us as animals. I know some of you are in denial. 
You go to the supermarket or cafe and there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed. <laughs> People walk right through. Just. I think we should be proud to be part of this beautiful kingdom of creatures. But our ancestors came down from the trees only about five million years ago. Among them was an ape woman that scientists have named Lucy, the mother of us all. So we can assume that the father of us all was Ricky. <laughs> it's so obvious. <laughs> so obvious. Anyway, we started uh, living on the savanna, on the ground, using crude stone tools. We became what are now known as homo habilis, or handyman. And handyman started standing upright more often, maybe to fix a leaky roof or something. And pretty soon we were standing up a lot. We became what is now known as homo erectus, upright human. And we're not talking morality here. And soon after we stood upright, the loincloth was invented for obvious reasons. But standing up was a very important moment uh, in our evolution because it's associated with a rapid increase in brain size. Now, you'd think that standing up would cause our feet to swell instead, but here's the theory. Standing up left our hands free to work with tools, spears and axes, chopsticks, we needed more brain connections to control the more precise movement of our hands and fingers. So this feedback loop was created. Better hands, bigger brains, etc. Also, standing up left our arms free to carry our stuff around. Big, a big change. You know, we could move. We became nomadic. We could learn how to live in different climes and different spaces. We started wandering out of Africa. Nobody knows exactly why we left. I suspect it was to look for Chinese food, but uh, <laughs> at the time our brains were only half the size they are today, or we might have been able to figure out how to send out for Chinese food, if possible. Anyway, we started wandering around the planet. Our brains, our brains kept growing. One theory is that we encountered an ice age or two and had to think hard and fast how to stay warm. And uh, we, it would have been simpler to grow a heavy coat of fur, but we didn't think of it at the time. So we had to grow a bigger brain, and then we invented fire and started sitting around the fire and telling stories about ourselves like this one that I'm telling you now, the story of evolution. <laughs> We're starting to get, catch, catch up with where we are. Just hold on, just a few more stops along the way. 40,000 years ago, the Cro-Magnon people appear, our immediate relatives, and they begin having elaborate burial rituals, making masks and jewelry, obviously having begun asking some of the big questions. And I suspect that the Cro-Magnon people were the first to display a sense of humor, which they got by watching Neanderthals work with tools. <laughs> you know, they were always dropping them, and they couldn't figure out how to use the pliers, never, never got there. 10,000 years ago, our really great grandparents appear, 
begin living in cities, making agriculture. The last 10,000 years has been a complete revolution in the life of this planet due to our behavior, our brilliance. Now we can fly off the planet. We can see to the edges of the universe. We can see deep inside of matter. We know how things work in physics, biology, in chemistry. In just the last 200 years, we've nearly doubled the average human lifespan. So now you get twice as long to be yourself. Just a few generations ago, most of our ancestors were peasants. And now most of us are called on to absorb many volumes of information in a lifetime, operate fairly sophisticated machinery. I think we're doing actually a pretty good job of being human. The evolutionary biologists say we're still working with brains designed for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. That would explain our addiction to shopping. <laughs> you know, if it's out there, go get it. It might also help explain our confusion and our territorial ways. But if we see ourselves in this story, we also can find hope. First of all, we see that life is really tough and has survived continent collisions and comet collisions and ice ages and plagues. Life will survive us if that's what it comes to be or some version of us. We also find hope by looking just back at our own history 2,500 years ago. The Axial Age, we had the Buddha in India, Socrates in Greece, Lao Tzu in China. It was a revolution in consciousness. Just 2,500 years ago is a blink of a blink of an eye in evolutionary time. We're just now starting to wake up to how this being operates and what we might be able to do to intervene and find some freedom from what we've inherited from the past. Our contemporaries, basically Darwin, Freud, Jung, Einstein, Hubble, we're just now getting a whole new picture of who we are. And the more we find out about ourselves in the universe, the more wondrous the story becomes. Just think, less than a hundred years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe. Less than a hundred years ago. And now we know of billions of galaxies. We now know that life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with a hundred trillion cells. That's you and me. And inside each of our cells is a little strand of DNA containing inf the information equivalent to thousands of volumes. The whole history of life is stitched inside of you. Looking at the creativity and complexity of life, and human life in particular, it's hard not to believe that there's some purpose, there's some, something meaningful going on here. Maybe we just haven't found it yet, we haven't touched it yet. E.O. Wilson, the great biologist, says, 
Trying to imagine a human being being created by random chance in the universe is like imagining a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. We're walking, talking wonders. We're phenomena. Do you know your brain is processing 11 million bits of information a second? And you hardly have to lift a finger. It all goes on within you and without you. So much of it. Anyway, sometimes when I get depressed or saddened about what's going on, I try to remember it's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make me. What a project. <laughs> Cause for some self-esteem, you know. 13.7 billion years. So it hasn't made me perfect yet. That's why I'm here. With all of, that's why we're all here. See if we can't find a way to uh, live with more ease and harmony with the rest of life on this planet. I think that this practice is so vital to understanding ourselves and feeling ourselves, you know, just organically, without even directing it, just by being present with our breath and our aliveness, we begin to gain a different identity than the single narrative drama that goes on in our, in our heads. We, we rejoin the flow of life on this planet. So we have time, I think, for a few questions or comments, if there are any. Or additions or corrections. Anybody? Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I was listening to national um, the, um, NPR, and this was maybe three weeks ago or so, and they, there was an anthropologist that they were interviewing, a woman. And she was stating from her studies that we are not, um, we did not come down from Cro-Magnon man, that there was a split, and that um, I think it was Homo sapiens came in or um, into the territory where Cro-Magnon man was with the dog and wiped out Cro-Magnon man in a thousand years. And she felt it was because of the dog, the line <laughs> that was needed to go with the dog and uh -huh. alert and attack and survive. I, I don't know anything about that. I, I don't know if, if it, there was a, a lot of stories about the Neanderthal mm -hmm. being uh, invaded by the Cro-Magnon, mm -hmm. but I, I, I don't know about Homo sapiens involved in that. But what, what you just said reminds me, I mean, we are right in the middle of these revolutions in knowledge about who we are and where we came from and uh, you know how it all works. Not just from doing this practice, but from the science, from the world of science. It's such a rich time and very exciting. I don't know, I've been looking for, maybe some one of you knows this, who named us 
Homo sapiens sapiens. Twice wise. I mean, that's hard enough to live up to one Homo sapien, but that's what we're known as now, you know, Homo sapiens sapiens. Others, others. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we are going to repeat uh, because they're showing reruns of uh, the I Love Lucy show. So. <laughs> well, you know, they've discovered, uh, you know, another planet of, I don't know how many light years away, you know, about that the light years you would would imagine where that could support life this planet and they may be seeing the not in reruns they may be seeing I love Lucy at, at first broadcast one of these days yeah sorry that was too convoluted <laughs> yes Yes, I, I think uh, all species, all life is evolving constantly. The natural selection is constantly choosing traits, you know, by increments perhaps, but nonetheless the, the process is going on all the time. And it has nothing to do with what we think of as smarter or better or good or bad. It, it's just what fits a natural uh, a demand of nature. You know, for two uh, billion years of life on this planet, there were no legs because there was no land. And that's, you know, that's what evolution's all about is adjusting life to survive in different conditions, natural conditions. <coughs> it's an amazing theory, you know, and it's, uh, it sort of undercuts some of our sense of that we're in charge of this whole show here, you know. It's, it's humbling, and we certainly, I think, as humans, needed a bit of humbling. If we came from the sea billions of years ago, then why isn't there still some humans out there swimming around that look like us, that you know, were able to Dolphins. survive out there? Dolphins, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why they're there. I mean, the, the smart ones went back, you know. They, <laughs> it's a lot easier to move through water, you know, a lot more support from uh, gravity. Okay, well, thank you all for coming. I, I enjoyed being with you tonight. Uh, remember, if you want a postcard about the show on Friday, please come up and get it. Let's just sit for a few moments in silence before we leave. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.